0: Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for the authority of your word. Father, whenever we study scripture, we, we want to approach it with caution. We want to treat your word as fairly as we can. We certainly don't want to read into it or make it say what we want it to say. So God, today, keep us from that and, and allow us to read out of your word what it is truly saying in the intention of the author and, and the very heart of of God, as you would speak to us today, Father, I, I pray that your truth is what would settle, like the dust would settle, and your truth is, is what would emerge of all of this, and, and not just man's nice ideas and piecework as we put scriptures together. God, we want to be good students and investigators of your word and, and deal rightly with it, so would you help us as we do that today, God? especially as we get into this very, uh, very difficult concept of the millennium. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first thing that I want us to tackle again today, like I did last week, because this is a two-parter, we're asking the question, what is the order of the day of the Lord? Um, we need to know the relevancy of this whole thing about the millennium? Is it even worth studying? And I would say yes, not because we have this huge understanding of what the millennium is, because I see the millennium as the church age, so it doesn't help me. And I would venture to say that there's only one place that mentions it, that's Revelation 20, and the rest is just talking about this present age. So that's the term that I, I choose to use, this present age, rather than millennium, because again, millennium is a Man's word from the Latin. In um, the early church, they used the term which is from the Greek. Regardless, this is our word that we're using, and it comes to us from one passage in Scripture, Revelation 20. So, what is the relevancy of? What is the purpose of even looking at this? Um, <clears throat> now, I'm going to share with you what I believe uh, when I come to the Old Testament, how I interpret Scripture passages. Because as someone who does not believe that there is a, Steve, you used the concept of a fulcrum between this present age and the age to come. And that the millennium, maybe this thousand years could be viewed as a fulcrum. And I'm going to say, well, if we remove the fulcrum or remove that age that we're not sure, is it really this present age or is it the age to come? And, and people kind of, some people put it in this present age, some in the age to come. The truth is, if there's no millennium, then when I come to the Old Testament and I come across passages like Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65, and I want us to then, uh, today I want us to, to look at a little bit, or me we talk about a little bit more, um, have a little bit more focus on is Ezekiel 40 to 48. This is the building of the Ezekiel's temple. It doesn't match any prior temple. It doesn't match Herod's temple. It, it you, it's based. Uh, it, it comes to us from the B, uh, base ten um, nu- numerology. Um, it it has this ideal dimensions to it, if you will. Okay, so it's the historic premillennialists
1: generally
0: do not interpret it as the dispensational premillennialists do. There are far more historic premillennialists that will admit there's no place in the Old Testament that talks about the millennium, and there's only one place in the New Testament that talks about the millennium, and that's Revelation 20. I say, I agree with that, if we use this term millennium to refer to the thousand years. <clears throat> uh, because I believe the millennium is mentioned throughout the scripture because it. It's the same as the church age, and the church age is. Okay. What that does then is it causes me, when I look at these passages that the dispensational premillennialists tell me refer to the millennium, I say, well, since the Bible, my perspective, does not teach the millennium, then that means the passage you're telling me that refers to the millennium either refers to this age or the age to come. When it talks about the, well, the phrase, the lion lying down with the lamb, that's not a passage that's found anywhere in Scripture. It's really the wolf that lays down with the lamb, or the wolf that feeds with the lamb. <clears throat> but that's found in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65. I would say that Isaiah 11 refers to the church age. Isaiah 65 refers to heaven itself. And 65 even tells me that it does. It talks about the new heavens and the new earth. Um, but that is a phrase that is a symbol of peace. And it's even used today when you see a lion. For some reason, I don't know how it came about, the lion lying down with the lamb. I don't know how that came to represent the millennium. It's not, a, it's not in Scripture, but you do understand the concept. It's really the wolf, all right? So regardless, it, it, it conveys this idea of a golden age or of peace. And we experience Understand, we experience salvation in part, now, in Heaven, we experience salvation in full. I experience God's uh grace in part. Now, in heaven, I experience it in full. I experience life and this resurrection, life of Jesus in me in part now, but then, in glory, I will experience it in full. and that's what we see constantly that we are we, this inheritance that we have is in part. And in heaven it is in full, and so of course this idea of peace and and the reign of Christ that will spread throughout the earth is in part now. It will happen in full later. So Isaiah eleven speaks of it in part. In Isaiah sixty five it speaks of it in whole. And so the symbols are the same. Okay. So, but when I come to Isaiah, excuse me, Ezekiel forty to forty eight, <clears throat> I am told by a dispensational premillennialist and this is the common view that that is the building of the temple in the millennium christ will set up his royal throne um, in jerusalem there will be a literal jerusalem and that the the temple of god will be there that's laid out for us in ezekiel 40 to 48 same with the land and this river that flows from the temple into the dead sea and we are told that that is a literal temple we are told that it's a literal river that the land is li- everything is literal that's that is the common hermeneutic of the premillennialist because they want to apply that then to revelation 20 even though there are still parts of it that they do consider symbolic what have you in revelation So they they lean more towards a literal. I lean more towards a symbolic. So when we come to Ezekiel 40, and I'm told that it refers to the millennium, I say, but the Bible doesn't teach a millennium. What age then, this present age or the age to come, does this fit in? Now, I believe, and I don't have time to do this, but there are clues in Ezekiel 37 that tell us, and 36, that tell us that this temple that's going to be built is not a literal temple. And there are clues even within Isaiah, excuse me, Ezekiel 47, that the river flows out, that it it is a beautiful picture of the flow of the spirit in our day, in this present age. And there is therefore an invitation to us not to walk in the river ankle deep, knee deep, or waist deep, because the purpose of the river is that it carry us. And it's it's the the symbolism is is so rich there. When Ezekiel tries to cross the river, and he says he couldn't cross it, it swept him off his feet. So he could he had to go back to the bank. When he gets back to the bank. What he sees is there is life everywhere. There are fruit trees that bear fruit. Twelve months out of the year, everywhere the river goes, there is life. Well, before that point in the millennium, was there no life in Jerusalem? Was there no life a 100,000 cubits or 2,000 or 3,000 cubits? The life doesn't begin until 4,000 cubits um, away from the temple. So do you see, if this is literal... We have a problem with this idea that this river brings life only to those th- only 4,000 cubits beyond Jerusalem or the temple. But when you understand that the prophet is using this symbolically, it makes perfect sense. And it's an invitation to us to be in that portion of the river then that everywhere it goes, it brings life. We even sing a song with regard to that. The song's not about the millennium. I think the songwriter had it right it is an invitation for us that's where we want to be not where it's just ankle deep or knee deep too many believers and historically it's proven that when they camp out there there is no life in the spirit they've been changed praise god but there are there are very few miracles there's very few moving of the spirit the the uh, spiritual gifts and so on and so That is the focus, even, in the New Testament, this life-giving flow of the Spirit of God. And so, this, then, is what I seek to salvage from the dispensational premillennials. I hope that doesn't sound harsh in any way, but if we're just going to take these passages, and there's many passages, there's Psalm 2, Psalm 78, there's Zechariah chapter 9 that talks about um, the The kingdom of the Messiah extending from sea to sea, from the great river to to where I, I can't remember now. I, I, I'm forgetting. But th- this expansive kingdom of th- that's the millennium. Well, no, th- that's now. That is the opportunity for us as Jesus' church. So, do you see? Then, if if we're not going to take those passages, and because they just seem so phenomenal, like grandiose. That, well, that must be the millennium. Well, no, it's for us in in our in this day. And so for me, I, that is the value of studying the millennium. It, it, it says, no, I'm not going to treat Ezekiel 40 to 48 literally. That wasn't Ezekiel's purpose. Uh, Ezekiel was a very symbolic uh, preacher prophet, and. Forty to forty-eight is is very symbolic. It's not meant to be literal. Okay, when you start interpreting it literal, you run across things like this river. You run across things like sacrifices, um, the reinstitution of bloody animal sacrifices in the millennium, because the dispensational premillennialist used the millennium's focus as the, the opportunity for the Jewish nation to rule as they were meant to rule. Um. I have a serious problem with bloody sacrifices being reinstituted anytime after Christ because we are clearly told in Hebrews 8 that they are obsolete. That means they're gone, they're over with, never to come back, they're obsolete. There's no need for them. They are a shadow of things to come. The reality, and Jesus even used this the 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 New Testament writers even use this idea of fulfillment. The sacrifices were fulfilled in Christ. So the dispensational premillennialist says, well, they're only for a memorial, much like the Lord's Supper is. Well, I I see a vast difference between bloody sacrifices and the Lord's Supper. Um, One is a memorial. Bloody sacrifices, excuse me, the, the idea... I truly, truly believe that this reinstitution of bloody sacrifices so attacks and decimates the power of the gospel and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the very focus and efficacy of the cross to reinstitute sacrifices is an affront. And and it's a shame to present as an option. It, it, It won't happen. It can't happen. And scripture, I think, makes this clear. But if we're going to interpret it literally, the dispensational premillennialists would say, yes, the, that temple, there will be bloody sacrifices, etc. Um, and so, what I'm going to do right now, just very quickly, the dispensational premillennial view, again, has been around for only about 150 years. The idea is that when Jesus came and began to preach the kingdom of God, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He presented the kingdom. And the gospel, believe in me, and the Jews, they tell us, rejected it. And because of that, Jesus withdrew the offer of the kingdom because the kingdom was supposed to be this golden age. That is the kingdom of God. They say that's what the kingdom of God is talked about in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus wanted to bring. But the Jews as a nation rejected it, so Jesus withdrew it. And he did not offer, he did not give them the kingdom as a result. And instead, then the kingdom, which is going to be very Jewish in its nature, is going to be inaugurated between Jesus' first coming and the day of judgment. So, this, this view then focuses on this concept of the kingdom because the church age does not experience the kingdom of God. It is going to be inaugurated in the millennium with Christ, the root of Jesse, the son of David, ruling on a physical throne in Jerusalem as, in his physical presence, people will still have the opportunity by grace through faith to come to salvation in Christ. Um, <clears throat> and we are told that during this reign, Christ will rule with an iron scepter. Okay, He will smash nations that disobey him like pottery. And, and that's a quote from Psalm um, two. And so the, the, the purpose then of the dispensational view is, is to say that we right now are not living in the kingdom. Uh, for me, I find that very offensive because the whole purpose of Jesus coming was to tell us that th- the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit is what inaugurates the kingdom. If there's no kingdom, there is no move of the spirit. And Matthew 12, Jesus says that if these demons are being cast out, Know that the kingdom of God is among you. So, if the kingdom of God is among you, then there is no casting out of demons. Do you see this? Because the casting out of demons, which is the power of the Holy Spirit, or the other, in Luke it says the finger of God, then, then if if there is no kingdom of God, and there is no power of the Holy Spirit that can bring about miracles that can cast out demons. And so within dispensationalism, they do say that. There are no demons being cast out. There are no resurrections from the dead. There are no miracles being done in our day. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not here. So do you understand now why the dispensationalists do not believe that all the gifts of the Spirit are for today? Because the kingdom of God is here, is not here. And the power of the Spirit with regard to uh, the things that Jesus spoke of do not happen, okay because the kingdom has been lifted and not offered to to the to the world anymore. It's been reserved for the millennium okay um, that's all that I want to say about dispensational premillennialism. I would venture to say though that many people who would look at their chart their prophecy chart here and say yeah i think i do do believe in a rapture i do believe in a literal uh uh, millennium between jesus second coming and the judgment but they would not believe that the kingdom is not today and which is the heart and soul of the dispensational theology okay questions yeah mike Good question. I would like to get into that. Jesus did say, "I'm not going to give you the kingdom. I'm not going to give it to you others." Which to me says that he is going. He's still going to bring the kingdom. He's just not going to give it to the Jews. So the kingdom was taken from the Jews. Re- Romans 11 tells us the Jews were grafted out of the vine. Now, but let's understand the early church. Was not just very Jewish; it was completely Jewish. The Jews did respond to the gospel. Not all of them, not the entire nation, but thousands did. And from there, then the gospel is moving in the power of the Spirit, and everywhere it goes, it is bringing life. Ezekiel forty-seven, um, and, and so I, we need to we need to rescue. Okay, I'm just gonna say, we need to rescue this idea of the church age and the move of the Spirit of God from this dispensational view. This is the kingdom of God is not here. It is and, and that's the thrust of the gospel. If there's no kingdom, church, there is no there is no gospel. And dispensationalists don't believe that. They believe that the gospel is here. It's the gospel of the kingdom. That's what it's called. If you get rid of the if you get rid of the kingdom, you get rid of the gospel Mm -hmm. and they have to go hand in glove. And so Jesus wasn't just offering the kingdom to them. Jesus was bringing the kingdom, the kingdom was already there. The kingdom of God is among you, he said. And so he didn't just give them the kingdom and then pull it back. It is here. All right, there's much more, in all fairness to dispensationalists, that we could get into, but we just can't. But that's where they're coming from. So what I want to do right now is I want us to... Oh, goodness, we have a lot to cover. I want us to look at some very significant passages. So first turn with me to Matthew 19. And I want to look at this concept of the palingenesia, or the renewal of all things. Um... Matthew nineteen twenty eight says this. It says, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth at the Palingenesia, P-A-L-I-N-G-E-N-N-E-S-I-A, Palingenesia, or uh, I'm going to come back to that word. At the Palingenesia, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now we are told specifically uh, by, well, I would venture to say, by all premillennialists, that this is a picture of the millennium in which the uh, the the apostles they're sitting on twelve thrones and they are judging it or ruling the twelve nations of Israel. Okay. Um, it goes on, verse twenty nine. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Palingenesia. That literally means again, beginning or the beginning again. The beginning again. There's a a definite or a definite article. It's not just a re-beginning but it is the re-beginning or beginning again. So here's my question. If you have in view the church age, the millennium, and the new heavens and the new earth, you personally, what you surmise of what those three ages bring to us, and what happens in them, which one of them would you call the re-beginning, the re-genesis, going back, to Genesis, when there was no sin and no curse on the earth, and it is a, it's 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 a restart. Would it be the Church Age? No, we 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 do begin. We become new creatures, but this new creation it's only in part. The Millennium. It, it, would it be fair to to say that the Millennium is? The going back to Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall, and there's no sin, there's no curse, and so there's no premillennialists that believe that. Um, They do believe that there's sin and there's a curse. that People still die. And my question then is, then of all three of these, including the new heavens and the new earth in which everything is made new, why would Jesus call the millennium the rebeginning. Wow, I mean, I mean if there is a, a rebeginning, Jesus, it's it's gonna be the new heavens and the new earth. And and again, it's not a rebeginning, it is the rebeginning. Okay? So I'm gonna suggest to you there are two ages. This rebeginning is not the church age, even though there are some new beginnings, new creations, it is the new heavens and the new earth that is the rebeginning. The re-Genesis, or the beginning again, okay? It's then in the new heavens and new earth in which the 12 apostles will be sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Look how verse 29 begins. What's the first word in that verse? At the re-beginning, Jesus will sit on his glorious throne, verse 29, first word, and.
1: Okay, so this is a
0: connective word here. At the re-beginning, at the new heavens and the new earth, two things are going to happen. Jesus is going to sit on his glorious throne, and you're going to receive all of the rewards of everything that you gave up, including what? Look there. Eternal life. Is that really what's going to happen in the millennium? That is the perfect picture of what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth, not the millennium. So Jesus is referring this concept of the palingenesia, this rebeginning, is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus sits on his glorious throne for all eternity, yes, on earth, but in which everything is made now. Let's turn now to Acts chapter <clears throat> Excuse me, Acts chapter three verse. Um I, I'm gonna limit this passage if you want to read it in greater context. I welcome you to do that, but due to time. Acts <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> <clears throat> Acts three verse twenty-one. Okay, three twenty-one. Peter is preaching to the Jews. Um, he's encouraging them to repent and turn to God for times of refreshing. Um, and then he says in verse 21, referring to Jesus who was appointed for them, he says, He, Jesus, must, listen to this, he must remain in heaven until. Ooh, doesn't that just, just in more, we're asking this concept of the millennium, doesn't that just you just want to ask the, just figure out what is it that he's going to talk about next because this is the key, isn't it? Jesus is going to remain in heaven, and then when he comes back, he's in, he's going to inaugurate the millennium, or is there going to be a new heavens and the new earth? What what does he say? He says he's going to remain in heaven until the time. So he's not talking about several times, but the time comes for God to restore. Everything. And that is a very literal way of translating the Greek here. Um, in Matthew 19, 28, the word, the renewal of all things, of all things, is supplied. Okay? And it's just, it's literally re-beginnings. But it's, the rebeginnings. I think the renewal of all things is a fair translation. It's just that all things is not in the Greek. Here it is. All things is in the Greek. The restoration of all things. As he promised. So this is something that has been talked about in the Old Testament. As he promised long ago through the Holy Prophets. This word, and you can, if you want to be really, really brave and go to a theological seminary, uh, you could go to my house or maybe some others who have this, but Gerhard Kittel... Produced a phenomenal 10 volume work, and it's basically the Theological Greek Dictionary. And he doesn't look at all Greek words, but he looks at a vast number of Greek words, um, and he goes to, in Greek, when it was first used back with the Iliad and Homer and such in the 700s B.C., marching all the way into the early church, how Greek words were used and how they evolved and their meanings and such. And it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal work. It took, my understanding, it took uh, a lot of his life. It didn't. He didn't just write it in a year. Okay, It was a process. Now, um, in this work, he looks at this word for restoration. Sometimes people use the, the idea of restitution only because if you steal four cattle, restitution means you give the four cattle back. You don't give three, you give four. That's restitution. okay. <clears throat> um, this idea, this word restoration is used in several contexts, of course, um, but it means a restoration to the original. It doesn't mean a partial restoration it's used to talk about planets that rotate through the sky and are restored back to its original location in the sky okay so this word for restoration uh, it, the thrust of it is full and complete restoration it's not partial and and that's really key here okay I'm not just leaning on that because it suits my purposes. You can read Gerhard Kittel. You can read other Vines. I don't know how Vines treats it, but you can look at other dictionaries that will really get into the etymology of a Greek word, and I can promise you that they will talk about full restoration as opposed to partial restoration. Okay. What does that mean here? If there is a full restoration of all things, can we legitimately say that the millennium presents a full restoration? There's still sin. There's still death. The curse is not lifted until the new heavens and the new earth. Um, There are some things that are changed within the animal kingdom. uh, Topography, the the layout of the earth's land, there seems to be again. This is the premillennialist's millennium. This is how they view it. There, there are There is going to be some restructuring, but by no means is it a full restoration. Okay. So, if this word means what it means, that it's a full restoration of all things, it cannot fit the premillennialist's millennium. It can't. But this passage just told us. That Jesus is going to remain in heaven until God restores everything to its original beginning. Genesis, And that happens in the new heavens and the new earth. It does not happen in the millennium. Okay? And so scripture tells us Jesus is going to remain in heaven until the new heavens. Like like a future talk, but I've heard people use that like the word there and like the restoration principle to say that like because he's going to restore things as they were, um, that, <clears throat> like hell will be obliterated. Yeah, I'm not saying I do that. Okay, I, I'm not going to get into that. That's the concept of annihilationism, and we're going to look at that another time when <laughs> we we'll get into eternal death. So. Um, But yeah, I I, I I I don't believe that because hell has absolutely, and this is key, hell has absolutely nothing to do with heaven. Do you understand this? Okay. So, all things that God created will be will go back to its original. But there most certainly will be a hell because Revelation that talks about the new heavens and new earth talks about the hell. Um, But we'll come back to this concept of annihilationism another day. Um, Let's move on now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, there are two passages that we're going to want to look at. The first one, um, its focus is twofold. Versus... um, 23 through 26. And I'm just going to let you know right up front, the focus is twofold. It's the resurrection and it's the reign of Christ. That's key here. I'm going to come back to that. So the purpose that Paul is writing this is to talk about the resurrection and the reign of Christ. So let's look at verse 23. But each, now he's talking about those who are being made alive. And it's obviously, since the topic here in all of chapter 15 is the resurrection, that it continues to be the focus here. So, but each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So those who belong to him will be resurrected. And when will that happen? When will they be resurrected? According to this passage... When he comes. Okay. What's the next word that you have in your version? Verse twenty four. Then then. But. Then okay. uh I'm sorry? But, but and, and how does and what version is that? NASB? Ah, okay. So chapter fifteen, here we go. Verse twenty four. Um, the word is best translated then, but it's not the Greek word Tate that we looked at in Matthew 25 and, and Matthew 16. it also uses it. But this is a word that can mean after that. All right? After that. So it, it does not necessarily mean immediately after that. And so this is where premillennialists insert their millennium between verses 23 and 24. Okay, there is no mention of the millennium. Paul's intention, they say, is to skip over the millennium, talk about the return of Christ and our resurrection, and then at the end of the age, he picks up with verse 24, it says, then the end will come. The teleos, the the end of the, the age will come. When he, referring to Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he put, has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay. So, I have a problem if Paul's focus here is the resurrection and Jesus' reign... Why he would skip over the millennium, or may I say the premillennialists, millennium. Okay. Why would he skip over that? Because that is all about the reign of Christ. He's going to reign until he has put everything under his feet, including death. But death will be the last enemy to be conquered. Why would he want to disregard the millennium? And this is his chance to jump on this idea of a millennium. And Paul, teach us about the millennium. Some New Testament author, Paul, you're great at this. Tell us about the millennium. Tell me about how Christ is going to reign on the earth. Tell me about how he's going to rule the nations with an iron scepter and bring everything under his feet. But he's silent. Paul, your focus here is the resurrection and the reign of Christ because at the end of the reign of Christ, when everything's finally under his feet, he turns the kingdom over to the Father. Okay? And and I would suggest that minimally, here's a great opportunity for Paul to talk to us about the millennium and he doesn't say a word. But secondly, I'm going to suggest... He should tell us about the, the millennium because he wants to tell us about the resurrection and the reign of Christ, but he doesn't. The next question that we need to ask is, when is it that death will finally be conquered? Okay, He doesn't answer that question here. He just says it will happen, then the end will come, and death will finally be made uh, his footstool. In other words, he will triumph over it. He answers that question a little bit later in the chapter. So let's go there if we if we can. <clears throat> um, starting with verse 51. Listen, I, I've read this to you before, but it says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. And when he says we, I'm assuming he's including himself. We will not all sleep. The church of Jesus will not all sleep. But the church will all be changed. Now, in other words, when Jesus comes back, not everyone will have died. Jesus is going to come back and some of us are going to be alive. That, that's what he's saying. That is what 1 Thessalonians 4 told us already. Um, but we're not all going to die. We're not all going to fall asleep. But we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Now look at verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So here's my question. When will death finally become Jesus' footstool and as the conquering king, be victorious over death and destroy it, and not just death, but the next verse talks about the sting of death, which is sin. So death and sin destroyed. When will that happen? Well, according to the context. No, oh. oh. okay. D- don't. I want you to look at the passage and answer that question. No, no, no. I want you to answer it, but I want you to answer it according to what the verse tells us. Look at that verse. When and then? When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then. Okay, pause right there. What does that describe? That was my question. Okay. Mm -hmm. What does imperishable look like? Imperishable means that it can't perish, it can't rot, it can't decay. Is it like Jesus at the Transfiguration? We're going to get it get to that. I've talked about it a little bit, but we're going to get to it when we talk about the rest. Did we talk about the resurrection yet? Okay. A- anyway, it, okay. for, forgive me, it just so the first part of 54 talks about the resurrection, the perishable being clothed with the imperishable. That's the resurrection. In essence, when the resurrection happens, then, then what? So here is the order. And you can't get or you can't sandwich a thousand years in here, okay? Because he says when this happens then this will happen. He's not saying then a thousand years later. No. His whole purpose is this. When the resurrection happens, death will forever be defeated. Sin and the curse gone forever. Hallelujah. Who has done this? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay? That's when death will be made a footstool. When will the end come? Jesus turned the kingdom over to the Father. That's going to happen when death is finally his footstool and is conquered. When will that happen? At the resurrection. Now, I'm open to other ways of interpreting this, but this seems pretty kind of cut right here. When the resurrection happens, then death is destroyed. So let's go back here. Okay, when... The resurrection happens, according to this view, a thousand years later, that's when death is destroyed in the new heavens and the new earth. In and, and the if you hold to a premillennial view, you have to be able to insert a thousand years before the word then. I mean I mean, chronologically speaking. And I, I'm not seeing another way around it. You, because when death is over and done with then you have the millennium well, no because people die in the millennium so death is not gone and we can't say death is just gone for those who are resurrected because that always happens when when i die death is gone for me but death is not gone death is not defeated not on the earth anyway and that's paul's point death is defeated it's gone forever Not just for those who are resurrected and poor people who have to still live on the earth, because you will have to deal with death and sin and all of that. That's not his point. His point is is very clear here. It's gone. Jesus has finally been victorious. It has now become his footstool, which we looked, and that's going to be at the end. When you you look at a non-millennial view, you see the return of Christ, the resurrection, with the judgment, the return, the resurrection and the judgment happens on the day of the Lord, and then death is destroyed. Jesus comes back, the resurrection happens, and we're judged, then the end happens, and there's no sin, there's no death, there's no curse, no tears, and, and I, I look at this passage and I find it very difficult. It's almost as if Paul is closing the case here there's no possibility for a thousand years to be inserted now obviously very godly men and women have wrestled over this passage and still some would say but it's got to be in there somewhere somehow and I just have to step back and I see I think Paul's very clear okay and and I, I can't see how we can we can put it in here somewhere. Question, Stephen? Yeah. Pardon? So growing up as an Amish, like we were taught, there actually isn't a millennium. Like ah means none, so there is no millennium. It's just the church age. So, like, okay. Why do we even have millennium on the chart? Well, for this reason, because Revelation twenty talks about it. It talks about a thousand years, so there is a millennium. And please understand that the amillennialists did not come up with the term amillennialism. Okay, they didn't. I, I, in fact, I don't know of an amillennialist, so I'm not familiar with your view here at all. I, I don't know of any amillennialists who don't believe there's a millennium. They all believe there's a millennium. Okay, because they believe in Revelation 20. They just interpret it differently. So amillennialism means no millennium, and I don't know of no amillennialist who says there's no millennium. So just to I'm not aware of that view at all. As long as we're not defining millennium as a thousand year reign. But but see, we are defining. I do see a thousand year reign of Christ. It's just that it's happening right now and we're going to have to wait until. Okay, I understand that. But. We are in the millennium right now. So all, all I'm saying is there is a millennium. It's just that. Because John 20 talks about it, and it's one place in all of Scripture, I choose not to use the term millennium to describe the church age that I'm living in. I mean, I could, but it's we're living in the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself right here, and I'm just assuming that as I'm talking about this, you even understand what I'm saying, and we haven't even studied Revelation 20, Okay. So I, I, if you don't mind, I need to shut this down because we need to reserve it for next week. Because there's a lot of questions when we come to Revelation 20. Is it chronological? Is it literal? Is it symbolic? What, what is this and what is that? And so there's a lot of questions that we're going to have to ask. Okay, um, Let's move on now, if we could. Just We have looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So I'm only going to uh, read just a bit, but more refer to it. It says... That when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, let me back up. God will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen. Pause. What will happen? Judgment to those who are doing wicked, to the Thessalonians, and relief to us who are serving Christ. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. In blazing fire with his powerful angels. To speak to historic premillennialism, this clearly tells me that there is a judgment, but it will happen when Jesus is revealed from heaven. It says this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. I don't know how to say it clearer. Judgment is going to happen when Jesus comes back. That's what he said. But the historic premillennial view is judgment will happen a thousand years after Jesus comes back in blazing glory with his mighty angels. And uh, I'm not sure that that's what Paul is getting at here. Yes, the the historic premillennialism would have to say that judgment will happen a thousand years after Jesus comes back in blazing glory, uh, blazing fire with his powerful angels. But this verse says, this, referring to, let me back up. It says, God will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when Jesus is revealed from heaven. What is the, tr- what is the trouble that he's going to pay back to those who are persecuting the Thessalonians? When will that happen? It's not going to happen in their lifetime. It's going to happen at the judgment. Because this will happen, this payback will happen when Jesus returns. This passage cannot be telling us that this payback will happen a thousand years after Jesus returns in glory. Because it tells us this payback will happen. It says this will happen when... Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. It says he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified. That's the second coming. What's going to happen when he comes in glory? He's going to bring judgment. Actually, when we look at Jude, the prophecy that Enoch gave, um, and it tells us in that passage in Jude 14 and 15, it says, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone. He doesn't say, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones, and a thousand years later, he will judge everyone. So the premillennial, the the historic premillennial view, up until the mid eighteen hundreds, has serious trouble with this passage. There is no place to fit a millennium. So the dispensational premillennial said, "But wait, there are two judgments." The problem that we have with two judgments again is that there is not a day of judgment. There are days of judgment, or there is um, the, uh, the days of judgment, or that the judgment is like bookends to the millennium. But it, if it's the day of judgment, then everything in the millennium has to be characterized by the day of judgment. Do you see, do you see why I'm saying that? Because if the first, if we're going to call from this judgment to this judgment, the Day of Judgment, I am now saying that the Millennium is characterized by judgment. But I don't know anyone who believes that in in the premillennial camp. So, either there are two judgments, or two days of judgment, or the Day of Judgment is, or, or the Millennium is characterized by judgment. And therefore, these two judgments are like bookends to the Day of Judgment. And I, I don't believe that's telling you. So we have to deal with this. Jesus is coming back to bring judgment. Okay? And, and that's the end. That's the consummation of the ages. I want to spend the remainder of our time in Second Peter chapter 3. I I'm, I'm meant to have just a little bit more time to spend on this. Because it really is a very significant passage. 2 Peter chapter 3. I am going to read the verses to you. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start with verse 7. He's talking about the deluge, the flood. Okay. The mabul in Hebrew. The kataklismos in Greek. And those are words for catastrophe or flood. That mabul... There are many types of floods, but mabul always refers to Noah's flood. Kataklismos in the Greek always refers to Noah's flood, not to the flood of Matthew 7, where the floods came up and rain came down, floods came up. That's a different Greek word. And so this is specifically Noah's flood that destroyed the earth. And in verse 7, so this concept of complete and utter destruction is the counterpart to the day of the Lord. Okay. Which, for me, uh, I I believe that the Earth truly was completely destroyed. There, there was no. What do they call it? A gentle flood. That left no markings in the, uh, in the, um, the geological column. Okay. All right, and and that is where old Earth people believe what old old Earth people believe that the flood left no layers in the geologic column and it, they call it a gentle flood but how can you have a gentle flood if the flood the cataclysmos, is the counterpart to the end of the age and the destruction of the entire universe no the earth was in, was completely destroyed and a tremendous upheaval throughout the world okay sorry side note there And he says in verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The day of judgment, not the days of judgment, but the day of judgment. What's going to happen on the day of judgment? Fire, destruction of ungodly men. Do You see that in that verse. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Pause. Is he trying to insert the millennium here by talking about a thousand years? I don't think he is because that is not his purpose. His purpose is God's patience. People are saying, where's the, I thought Jesus was coming back. I thought Jesus was coming back. That is the context here. I didn't read it. If you if Go back to verse three and on. People are saying, "Where's the con- where's Jesus coming back?" I mean, he, in essence, He's not coming back. He's not going to keep His word. And Peter's point is, Jesus or God's patience, He's waiting, means salvation. We see that in verse fifteen, is it? Yeah. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. God is waiting for Jesus to come back because it's an opportunity for more to repent and be saved. So God is not slow in keeping his promises. He's waiting purposely. So that's the point of using this concept. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. I gotta keep reading, sorry. The Lord is not slow in all uh, slow excuse me. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slow slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So do you see his point here? His point is not to introduce the millennium, his point is simply to say, you know. You feel like it's taken him a long time, but in God's eyes, that's a really short time. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord. We heard about the day of judgment in which the earth is reserved for fire. Now he talks about the day of the Lord. I'm going to submit to you they're one and the same. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, it's going to come suddenly. It doesn't mean it's going to come at night. It just means it's going to come suddenly. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And we learned about that in verse 7. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. Now, so he's talked about the day of judgment in which the earth is destroyed by fire. He's talked about the day of the Lord in which the earth is destroyed by fire. Now he's talking about the day of God. And he says, and speed it's coming. That day, that is the day of God, will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt into the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. May I submit to you that the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, and the day of God, are all synonyms for this one cataclysmic event at the end of the age that up, that ushers in the new age, the new heavens and the new earth. <clears throat> I, I his point here is to talk about the return of the Lord, and he answers their impatience with talking about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, and the day of God. And he even says we can speed its coming. Now, why should we live godly lives? Because there's coming a day. Oh, I'll pick on the. Period. I'll, I'll use this term. Because a day is coming in which we will all be judged. But when Jesus comes back, his parousia, his second coming, which is the focus of this chapter, he's, he's answering the skeptic's question, why is Jesus taking so long? He is saying a day is coming in which God will destroy the earth. It's called the day of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 included the return of Christ and us being gathered up to him in this concept of the day of the Lord. All right? So we have to then say, from this point of the return of Christ all the way until the judgment, this is called the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, and the day of God. Okay? What does he say, though? That he says... That we can actually speed this day, we can speed it up by living godly lives. What is the context here? Why is Jesus taking so long? How do you answer that? Why? What's Peter's answer? Why is Jesus taking so long? Because he's patient with us. So, what's his goal? He wants to get all of us. He wants to get more people saved. Okay, so. I am called to live a godly life and by living a godly life which will be reflecting Christ and making disciples, I am actually speeding the day of the Lord. I'm not, I am bringing it closer. Why? Because I am living out Christ and therefore I am winning more to Christ which is the goal of Jesus, or excuse, of the Father holding off on the son coming. I want more to get saved. But you know what? You can speed this process up if you just fit into my program here and live a godly life so that people look at you and say, man, that's what I want. For you to tell people about Jesus so that they can get saved. That's the whole whole purpose of God holding off on sending his son. So here's my question that see, this is, what, this is the mindset of Peter, and, and, and I'm going to encourage you if you don't believe me, then read through and study this passage and see if it's not so. So, going back to this the parousia I am told that I can speed the day of the Lord in which God brings his judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. I can speed that day coming by living a godly life, and I am assuming. Telling people about Jesus. How, if there is a millennium of one thousand years, I can't say that I'm going to speed the judgment. I might be able to speed the return of the Lord. I might be able to speed the coming of the millennium, but I can't speed the judgment and the new heavens and the new earth by living a right life and evangelizing. Not according to this view, because there's a thousand years. Peter would tell me, you can speed the millennium coming, you can speed this golden age coming, if you live a godly life, but you can't speed the judgment and the destruction of all things and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth because you're going to have to wait a thousand years. Okay? And so, there is no mention of a thousand year reign in here. The whole focus of the day of the Lord Is this, and I want you to write this down. There are seven things. This is called the order of the day of the Lord. That's under the millennium, letter D, number two, the order of the day of the Lord. Now that we've looked at all of these passages, I'm going to give you the order. The parousia, Christ's second coming. That's number one. Number two, Christians being gathered to Jesus. Us being gathered to Him. Those are these two things are the very things that start off Second Thessalonians chapter two. Okay, the Parousia, the return of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. Number one, the Parousia, the return of the Lord. Number two, Christians being gathered to Jesus. Number three, the final battle and the destruction of the man of lawlessness. And this is the order that 2 Thessalonians 2 gives us. So the final battle, Armageddon, whatever you want to call it, the destruction of the man of lawlessness, which is the focus of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When Jesus comes back, he will destroy the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth, it says. Number four, the resurrection. Number five, The judgment. Number six, the destruction of the heavens and the earth. Number six, the destruction of the heavens and the earth. And number seven, new heavens and new earth. Seven things that comprise the day of the Lord. It's just that there's no passage in Scripture that tells me that part of the day of the Lord is the thousand-year reign of Christ between his between the resurrection and the judgment. Okay. Now, I am totally open to any passages, but in my study of it, I have not come across any passages. And I believe I've I've read all of them. I believe I've studied all of them. But none of them even hint at Okay? As a matter of fact, the scriptures that we've looked at today seem to actually close the door on the possibility of a thousand years. Now, next time we get together in two weeks, I want us then to say, okay, Let's go to the powder keg. Let's go to this main passage of Revelation 20, 1 through 10. And we're going to need to allow Revelation 20 to speak to us. We don't want to bring our preconceived ideas to Revelation 20. However, I think it's fair to concede, and even historic, many historic premillennialists would agree with what I'm about to say by the time you come to revelation 20 there is no passage of scripture that speaks of this millennium so the the weight of their the, the weight of interpreting revelation 20 symbolically is very heavy it would lead me to do that but i'm not going to do that i'm not going to just take my amillennial view and insert it in here and make revelation 20 say what I think it should say. We're going to need to treat it fairly, and we're going to need, whether we're premillennialists or, or whether we treat it literally symbolically, we need to look at the text and let the text tell us whether we treat this key as literal or symbolic. The dragon as literal or symbolic. The abyss as a place or a dimension. A, Everything, the thousand years, whether it's literal or symbolic. So we're gonna we need to allow the passage to tell us what it means. Let me close the prayer. Father, I want to thank you again for your scriptures. Father, I pray that if there's been anything in this class that has not been in accordance with your word, let it please just fall to the ground as nothing. And I ask you, Lord, what is of you? Let it remain. and Let that be the seed that falls on our hearts and grows. And I pray, Father, that it would produce fruit. Lord, we know that there is an end of this age coming in which everything will be destroyed and be renewed. Father, what manner of people ought we to be? How holy should we live in this day? May we live such God-honoring, Christ-centered, passion-for-your-kingdom-focused people that we would actually speed the day of God in its arrival. What an awesome day that would be, We Look so forward to it, God, and dwelling in that home of righteousness. So, Lord, let these words today be words of encouragement to us as we look forward to that day in which you begin again and make all things new. In Jesus' name.